Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is an absolute gem of a guest, uh, Daniel Hume. Daniel runs AI, with uh, the AI practice within WPP in Satalia. Um, Daniel, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Great to be here. I'm terribly excited. We've only got a short amount of time, so we're going to dive right in. Could you give us maybe 60 seconds on your history, please? Yeah, my entire academic academic background over the past 20 years is in AI. My undergraduate, my master's, PhD, postdocs are all in AI at UCL. I ran a master's program in AI in UCL where I had hundreds of students going out there applying these technologies. I'm entrepreneur in residence for UCL, so I help them take deep technology and spin it out. Um, I used to, oh, I'm still the CEO of, um, of Satalia, which builds AI solutions for some of the biggest companies in the world. And we were acquired by WPP um, just over a year ago, where I also take on the chief AI officer role. I'm deeply passionate about the impact of technology on society and trying to make the world better. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll come back to that in a minute because ethics is a big part of our chat today. Uh, but what the hell is AI and what isn't it? There, there's, there's, there's a common definition, which I think is weak but popular, which is getting computers to do things that humans can do. Over the past decade, we've managed to get machines to do things that traditionally only human beings can do. We can get them to correspond in natural language, to recognize objects and images. And when we get machines to, to do things that humans can do, because humans are the most intelligent thing we know in the universe, we assume that that's intelligence. Now, I would argue that, that humans are limited in our, our, our intelligence. Um, we're very good at finding patterns in about four dimensions, and we're very good at solving problems up to about seven. Beyond that, we're, we're pretty useless. So benchmarking machines against humans is a silly thing to do. There's a much better definition of AI that comes from the definition of intelligence, uh, which is a goal-directed adaptive behavior. What you want to do is ultimately build systems that can make decisions, learn about whether those decisions are good or bad, adapt themselves so that next time they can make better decisions. And according to that definition, I would argue that nobody's really doing AI um, in, in, um, in, in earnest in, um, in business because you, very, you tend not to see systems that can adapt themselves. I mean, even, even definitions like weak intelligence and, and uh, general AI and hard AI and narrow AI, I find these definitions wholly unuseful. I've built an entire career around defining AI. Um, I like to look at AI through its applications that have emerged over the past um, a couple of decades. Okay, I, I'm just my mind is whirring. Okay, so um, goal directed adaptive behavior. Well, clearly, if that's the definition of intelligence, I'm beginning to wonder about human beings. But that's another topic entirely. Um, okay, so let's dig a little bit into what is AI really useful for, and what's the difference between that and robotics and machine learning. Sure. So there, um, I think there are, there are essentially six categories uh, of applications that have emerged over the past couple of decades where technology, machine learning, various other tools have emerged, coupled with data, coupled with our, our ability to compute very, very quickly, have culminated in our ability to do new and interesting things. The six categories for me are, are in no particular order. The first one is, is task automation, basic task automation. I know, I know that if then else statements get bad raps and we often 
uh, tongue-in-cheek laugh at quote-unquote AI, but we can do actually quite a lot by taking very, very simple things that humans do, repeatable things that humans do, and replace them with very simple algorithms, whether they be machine vision algorithms or natural language algorithms or even Excel macros. So this is really robotic process automa automation. We're taking a, a standard thing that humans are doing and we're replacing it with a machine that, that, that does uh, takes an input and gives an output. We're seeing a lot of benefit in industry doing that. The second category is generative AI. <clears throat> so we're now able to use these tools to generate imagery, video, text, music that augments actually our creativity. So uh, in WPP, obviously, we use these tools a lot to try to come up with new content that we can then drive for, for marketing campaigns. So these are technologies that really can uh, enhance the, the human creative process. So this is stuff <laughs> like Jasper, um, DeepFakes, um that kind of so that exactly that kind of spectrum exactly exactly okay. <laughs> so that's generating content um uh that historically again would have been very difficult for human beings the, the the third category is the humanization of of ai what i mean by that is that we're able to now take a human being which is the interface and replace it by something that looks and feels very much like a human being it's almost indistinguishable between that and a human being and you know, each one of these categories that I'm going to talk about raise different ethical questions, safety questions, privacy questions. And actually, I think these categories are a much better way of, of, of surfacing some of, the, some of the challenges and how we mitigate them. So the third category is the humanization. It's the replacing of, of a human being with a, with a machine that looks and behaves like a human being. When I go to a website, I have, I'm not a bot. Should we have these uh, technologies declare that they are bots, for example? And should we well, give them they're intelligent names? enough to spot that then presumably they've made the Turing test. You can still make it very narrow. You can still build an avatar or build a, a very um, complex uh, natural language model that does a very good job at replacing it, uh, a human being, but it's not complete. What, what do you mean by natural language model? So I speak to it. Uh, it sounds like there's a human being the other end, but it's recording. Sounds or, or, or you're, you're head typing to it. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that's different to... I've been to one for a while, by the way. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and, and those complex natural language models that are different to, to I guess, some natural language models that, that are really just decision trees that are addressed in natural language, which are, are much, much more simple. So, so the third category is the, is the, is the humanisation. So the fourth category is, is really where machine learning data science plays, which you're able to get these tools to find and extract complex insights and correlations from data and then help us understand the world in, in ways that we've not been able to do before. The hypothesis is by giving human beings more insights, they're able to make better decisions. And actually, it turns out that the humans are not very good at making decisions. So there's a lot of emphasis in industry of hiring data scientists using machine learning. That's actually not going to lead to any real value because because the, the the dependency is on the human being making good decisions based on those insights. But anyway, that's the fourth category. The fifth category is is complex decision making. So an example here is if I've got five staff members, I need to allocate to five jobs. There are 120 possible ways I can allocate five people to five jobs. That's five factorial. If I've got 15 people to allocate to 15 jobs. I've now got a trillion ways to allocate them. If I've got 60 people to allocate to 60 jobs, I now have more possible combinations than there are atoms in the universe. So these historically, I guess, human, uh, companies would have planners trying to figure out how do you allocate these people to jobs or how do I 
um, allocate the routes to the, for my delivery drivers. These are complex decisions that scale very, very badly. Human beings can probably solve problems up to seven. Beyond that, we're pretty useless. So, so this is actually the realm of what used to be called operations research, optimization, uh, discrete mathematics. It matured in academia a few decades ago, and I actually believe that companies should be hiring for these people uh, before they should be hiring for data scientists, machine, machine learning experts. You need to solve the decision problem first before you worry about extracting insights. The final category, the sixth category, is the, um, the augmentation of, of your human self through cybernetics, through exoskeletons, and even augmenting yourself in the metaverse. So having your digital you, your avatar, be making decisions on your behalf. So those, for me, are the six categories. We're only really seeing big wins in task automation, basic task optimization, and, and also big wins in optimization, in, in decision-making. We're seeing some progress in the others, but actually I think that companies need to be investing in automation before they're concerned about augmenting human um, uh, human decision-making. And by the way, like each one of these different categories does raise ethical questions, they raise social questions. I actually would controversially argue there's no such thing as AI ethics. I'm happy to come back to that. But for example, one, one question might be, if I, if I can predict the footfall that's coming into my store, and let's assume that this weekend we've got hipsters coming into our store, there's a human bias called homophily which is we like to essentially engage with people like ourselves. So the best thing I can do is I, I, should, I should staff that store with hipsters because they are much more pro, uh, likely to be able to make sales because, because they've got hipsters coming in. And, and that might create social bubbles. It might create enforced uh, bigotry. We just don't know. So I have to be very, very careful about how we use these technologies. Well, it's really very interesting. I, I've been working with a machine learning company for the last year and a half, two years. And what is really very interesting is even though when people have insights, they fight it, and the data is exceptionally clear that they'll keep resisting because they want to do things the old way. And what I'm really very curious about is how do people who create AI and machine learning products today really start to understand the the, the job that's intended instead of going out there and creating I'm not sure whether I'm being fair, but an old mentor of mine claimed to be one of the four origins, uh, original founders of Intel. And he said that you know, entrepreneurs uh, uh, often create elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. Um, and I think because it's in vogue, there's a lot of people throwing the technology and the idea of it at problems that really probably don't need to matter when there are so many big problems where I see the technology being amazingly helpful is trying to make sense of the complexity of having interdependent, intertwined, wicked problems. Because I've seen the decline in sales performance and the level of complicatedness that's being created when actually what they're trying to accomplish is quite simple. But they've done everything they possibly can to get in the way by making the technology the issue and turning it into an arms race. Yeah, no, in, in, indeed, we, we, we see this a lot. And, and there's a couple of challenges here that need to be overcome. So the first challenge is, which you alluded to is that often people that have been in the job that you want to kind of give new insights to, they resist that because they claim, you know, they understand those insights better than, than you. And for the most part, they do. So you need to be careful about how you take those people on the journey. The other challenge as well is that we see a lot of technologies appearing that claim to be silver bullets. We have got an algorithm that's able to predict churn or predict cross-sell or upsell. And the reality is, is that 
churn can be a factor of many different things. And, and, and each different segment might require different data sets. It might even require different types of machine learning models to be able to predict churn. So, so we, we, see, we see technologies appearing that, that only solve 60% of the problem where they claim to solve 100% of the problem. And the reality is actually the problem is much more nuanced. And so what I like to do is understand the problem deeply, break it down into its constituent parts, and make sure that we're building a solution that we can guarantee can solve that very, very specific problem instead of trying to create a silver bullet. And, and, and I guess what we're going to see over the coming decade is companies providing assets or solutions coupled with services so they can take their 70% solution all the way to 100%. Now, building a company that can be good at delivering essentially asset-led consulting is a, is a very complex um, uh, challenge. I don't know many organizations that have been successful. This, again, is why I think we're missing a trick. We spend so much time, time trying to compete. What baffles me is why we aren't trying to work together on these problems and work with competitors. Um, I, I know I'm, I'm probably turning into an old hippie, who knows? Um, but you know, what put humanity to the top of the food chain was our ability to cooperate, then communicate, look at a problem with many different eyes on it, and really understand it, and then solve the problem together and choreograph our activity. So you know, when it's your turn to lead, you lead, when it's, and then ego's gotten away. And it just seems to me pretty fucking stupid when we've got these incredible problems ahead of us. That's not to cooperate. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what's the, uh, the culture like within the AI world? Because uh, you know, is it just as vile uh, and competitive as every other industry? Well, I have a couple of uh, views. Of, uh, one, one is a kind of short-term industrial view. And the second is a kind of long-term, how do we save the world view? So the short-term kind of industry view is that, is that Companies are realizing that they probably need to buy a handful of ERPs that cover parts of their business, whether it be their finance function or HR function or whatever. And then they realize that if they, if 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 John John Doe leaves, can they predict what impact that's going to have on the project and then what impact they're going to have financially? They can't really answer that question until you join up these ERPs. So that's why companies are building these data lakes. But but so to go back to your point about in some respects ego is that when an IT team has committed to purchasing some ERPs and you realize those ERPs are not really solving some of the specific problems in the business, it, 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 it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that the, the promise that was being delivered by those ERPs are not being fulfilled. So we do need to collaborate and we need to make sure that we're, we're not just buying modules from ERPs because it's easy to, easy to buy for them from them, but we're actually buying or building solutions that specifically solve the problem. When yeah, it comes to... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now, when it when it comes from when it comes to the macro view, so I've got a forty year plan, and my forty year plan is predicated on on the following hypothesis: is I organizations have a ton of frictions in in getting their goods created and 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 to market friction, and, and usually a friction, by the way, usually means a human being in the process or a system not doing what it's meant to do. And so, what what I'm trying to challenge myself is how how do I build an organizational structure and a new organizational operating system to allow for the, a group of people to swarm together to get innovation to market as fast as possible, whether that's Tesco's last mile delivery solution or Workforce solution we delivered for for PwC. How can we? You're talking about ecosystems in my language. 
Yeah, yeah, and though those could be inside the organization or they could also be um, yeah. uh, externally. So how do you essentially bring the right group of people together to get that innovation to market as fast and as, as scalable as possible? And I actually, I, for the past de- decades, Natalia has been building this solution ourselves. I want to not just scale that to WPP to 100,000 people. I want to scale it to a planet. So what I want to do is I want to try and create a, a new operating system that allows for people to come together, get innovations to market as fast as possible. By the way, if, if we can remove the friction from the creation and dissemination of goods like food and healthcare and education. If you can remove all of that friction, which usually means human labor, we can bring the cost of those goods down to almost zero. So imagine being born into a world where you don't have to work to pay for food, you don't have to work to, to, to pay for education, that it's there, it's abundant, it's free. So and I think we can only do that if we automate as much as possible. So then the question is, you know, what, what happens if people don't work or can't work? Well, first of all, all of their needs are met because they can get access to this, this abundance. But I also think that there's always going to be things that human beings want to do to contribute positively to humanity. So if we have this platform, can we enable people to come up with innovations and swarm around those innovations that contribute positively to humanity? I essentially want to try and create an ultra gig economy where where the best innovations get to market as fast as possible and those innovations get as cheap as possible and become abundant that's that's my 40-year plan okay so you're clearly going to come up against some very very powerful political and forces of self-interest trying to execute this now it's probably the right time but i suspect the hippies in the 60s thought the same thing so what is it that needs to be different this time so that we don't end up then just creating the next generation of Reaganite and Thatcherite children? Sure. Because we are also seeing the site. We've, one thing that people don't pay attention to, I'm delighted to hear that you have a 40-year plan. Most people don't look beyond their lifetime. History repeats itself. Economic cycles repeat themselves. And if you're not a student of that and you don't take a meta view and you're not getting above the clouds and looking above and behind you and around you, then chances are you're going to get bitten in the ass very, very quickly because of your lazy thinking. So in terms of how we sell this concept so that people who would automatically say that you're a communist and all that kind of shit that goes with the idea of trying to create, uh, raising people up instead of squishing them down, how do we position this so it's in their selfish self-interest to make it happen and be a, a willing contributor instead of just a vampiric force? Yeah, it's actually, I think it's already happening. So you're, you're right, I get, I get called the communist a lot, which is ironic given that I've just said I want to create an ultra-gig economy, which is essentially an ultra-capitalistic ultra structure. So a couple of things here. One is organisations are, are, are already starting to go on this journey. Companies are waking up and realizing that companies like Amazon, whatnot, have access to very cheap capital. If Amazon wants to go into insurance, what they can do is they can say, I'm going to go into insurance. They borrow very cheap capital from the market and then they under competitors, maybe even by providing a lesser good service, but because it's cheaper, users use it. Uh, they then kill the competitors and then they, they then monopolize the market. And so the question that I've been asking myself for many, many years is how do you compete with a company that doesn't need to make money? And what we're seeing, actually, is companies realizing that the only way to compete with them, those companies that are, for example, are having to provide 
quarterly market returns that don't have a seven-year view like an Amazon, those companies are realizing that the best way that they can compete is to actually take the innovations that they've built or they're sitting on and actually open sourcing them or opening them up and decentralizing them. So if you can, if I, if Tesco, for example, decentralizes their um, last mile delivery solution and then creates an ecosystem where people around the globe are able to contribute to it and are rewarded for that contribution, Tesco will benefit from that. Of course, Tesco's competitors will, but there's no way that it would make sense for Amazon to go and hire 3,000 people to build a last mile delivery solution. They have to use the open source solution and um, uh, because that's the, that's the thing that's going to get innovated faster and better than anything they could build in-house. Now, the benefit to Tesco is they might be able to access the data that's going through that system, and they also might be able to access the community, the talent base, to tap into. So yes, they won't be able to necessarily leverage that innovation for the next three years because they're giving it away, but they're able to get access to two things that are also valuable, data and talent. And what I think we'll see over the next several years are companies opening up their innovations and making them available because it's cool, it gives them access to talent and it gives them access to data. And the reason why I think it's different this time compared to, to the 60s is that is that technologies like blockchain De decentralized applications, AI actually can, can now potentially create these fluid, liquid organizations. It's actually very, very, very hard to create an organization that doesn't have hierarchies. It's really, really hard. I've been trying to do it for the past decade. And in some respects, we do have rigid hierarchies in my company. If you can remove, if you can create liquid organizations that can tap into the right group of people who are best placed to solve that particular problem, as opposed to, as opposed to being in the hierarchy, then you can create decentralized organizations. And I genuinely believe that the technologies that are now emerged over the past decade will enable these DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. It's very interesting because the ecosystem that me and a hundred of my closest friends uh, who've been on the podcast have been doing um, is trying to work out how to do that. And what's fascinating is seven out of seven attempts to get meetings with senior executives in multi-billion dollar organizations have resulted in meetings where the promise was, we need two hours of your time. We've never worked together. It could be a car crash. And every single one of them agreed to meet. Yeah. Now, that to me, and basically the promise is, we're going to work with you on your gnarliest, shippiest problem for two hours. And we'll give you all the insights. You can do whatever you like with it. You don't ever have to work with us. But what we want is the feedback of what it's like working with us and that experience. But the, just the concept of absolutely frictionless collaboration with the people who have the problem and working with the people who are expert in solving similar problems, but getting them all work together. And it's kind of like an x-ray, um, uh, not an x-ray, uh, radiation treatment. Uh, you don't have one big gamma gun. You've got a dozen of them with a low dose and all of them pointed at the problem. So the healthy tissue doesn't get burnt. And I think that's the future of the way we're going to solve these really difficult problems. Absolutely. We have to allow the right people to swarm around these problems. And then our organization structures are not set up this way. You know, actually people for, for many decades have been trying to think about this. There's a, there's a chap called Ricardo Semler, who um, is one of the kind of pioneers of, of creating companies, for example, without rules. Again, I think that the reason why it's different this time is because we can we can get organizations that are enabled by AI. So just to give you one example that we used to do in my company, 
we used to get everybody to make public recommendations for their salary. And then we would um, use AI to essentially weight people's ability to vote on whether those salaries should be reduced or increased or kept the same. So instead of your salary being determined by a manager, your salary is determined by a group of people who are best placed to make a, a decision about how, how well you've contributed. And I believe that we can use this kind of weighted decision-making I love that. To, to, to anything. Yeah. One of the things that I've been thinking with this ecosystem is that I like the whole idea of making the pie bigger. So a pie squared is 9.86. So I thought uh, in terms of the revenues generated, 9.86% would be percent would be taken a fee for being part of the group. And that would cover costs. But a proportion of that, at each time money was being released, because what I'm also really interested in is how you can get outcome-based pricing. So for hitting milestones, you get paid, and it's in escrow, so there's no trust problem there. But when that gets triggered, a proportion of that is determined by the other project members, and they allocate it to you. So I love the way you're thinking there. That's really, yes. really fantastic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you actually made that work. Yeah, it turns out, though, that, that humans are not very good at, at making a decision about their salaries. So we've, we've evolved it over the years. They're much better at determining their skill level compared to their peers. And what you could do is you can use AI to map skill level with market rates. So that data is already there. There's already a mapping. So it's easy. It works that way. But I believe we can use these types of structures for any decision. Uh, actually, I just had a, a, a bit of a, an argument or, or a laugh with my, my organization this morning. We're just in the process of writing some of our security policies. And as part of, I think, ISO 27001, it stipulated that the top management has to review and sign off the security policy. And there's a problem with that. First of all, we don't have top management. And second of all, why would you give a group of people that know nothing about security policies nothing. the power to sign to sign, to sign off? It, it, you should give it to the people that are, have the ability to make a call on whether that security policy is good or bad. Right. So, And again, to tackle that within the ecosystem, the rule is when it's your turn to lead, you step forward. When it's not, you step back. That's right. And That's right. if you don't have that, then... All you're going to do is follow the hierarchy, which then creates bottlenecks and more friction internally. You don't need mm -hmm. any more friction internally. Mm -hmm. So tell me this. When you implemented this kind of fluid organizational lack of structure uh, yeah. and this kind of culture of openness and personal accountability to the people who you affect, how did that affect engagement levels of the human being? Yeah, the, the irony is if you keep give people the choice to work on what they want, they tend to be very sticky. If you tell them, go and work on this, they tend to want to leave quite quickly. And I, I think the same, we're going to see the same phenomena with working from home and working from work. I think companies are going to say to people, you have to come into the office three days a week. No, some companies are going to say to people, you come in when you like. And I suspect you're going to get more people coming into the office when you give people a choice. I should also say that, that creating liquid or decentralized organizations, it's not about a lack of process. In fact, you probably need more structure and more process to allow yourselves to operate in, in these more complex ways. So, um, and we're still working, work, work, working through that. Is it structure um, or framework? It actually, probably more framework, should I? It's, it's, it's a, bit, a bit of both. But um, so I guess some of the challenges that we're facing actually are 
putting up against HR law. So if, you, if, you, if today you want to be a software developer and tomorrow a photographer and the next day, I don't know, giving feedback and the next day something else, there's no real mechanism to link that to a role. And there's no real mechanism to then um, hold, you, hold you accountable. Because usually when you join an organization, you, you have a role and that's how your performance is, is measured against. Although we all know that the roles that we take on in our companies are very different to actually what we do. So to be able to pay people in a fluid way, to be able to reduce people's salaries, to be able to not have titles, to be able to hire people when you don't have a specific type of title you're hiring for, is actually challenging. But I think that what we will see over the next um, decade, and Satalia plays a strong part in this, is we're going to see a granularization of work, of different types of skills, and people will join organizations and then fluidly fit them rather than being, being role-based. Surely they're all directors of special projects. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Anything, any shit we throw them at. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Thinking deeply. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm really, really intrigued then. How can we use, you said something at the beginning which jarred a little with me, um, and uh, I'm sure you're right because you started out by saying the last 20 years of my academic career and my but 2-2 in Middle Eastern studies, which was essentially through a hungover haze and four years of avoiding work, probably doesn't stack up in terms of creds. However, one thing I think human beings are really good at is when we get together, we're amazing at making creative leaps. Now, that's the bit that I think we should be using the technology to help us augment. How, How do we turn that superpower or supercharge that superpower using these technologies as our ally, as our partner? As a That's a really great question. It's a really, it's a really great question because it's, it's, there's a ton of things that we do in, in, in our organizations that are, are that should be automated. There's no reason why human beings should be doing that. So then what, what do you free human beings up to go and, to go and do? And, and in theory, you need to get them to do creative things that the AIs can't. Not to say that AIs can't be creative, now, interestingly, there's a, there's a very old innovation problem-solving framework called TRIZ. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a, it's a Russian cool innovation trip. framework. T-R-I-Z. It's a problem-solving frame, framework, but it's also used for innovation, so coming up with new ideas. So let's say I, I could build a digital twin of your company, and I could have AI running scenarios, predicting if this marketing campaign is going to increase this demand and what do I need to put the right number of racks in my warehouse to fulfill the customers, all that kind of stuff. You can get AI to run an entire business, automate an entire business. But of course, what you want to do probably is to to figure out how to diversify your revenue streams, which is potentially where you need human beings to come up with creative ideas. And Frizz is interesting because what what it's done is it's collected these kind of 40 archetypes of a problem so if you've got a specific problem you map it to one of these 40 archetypes that have then solutions associated with them that then you can then reverse back to your your original problem definition so it's it's essentially it's it's a it's an abstract way of solving very practical problems and i think that it's things like that that can be um that, that can be augmented with human beings so if human beings have a problem we define the problem potentially the ai can help us understand what are the archetypes of this this map to what are the solutions and then how does this solution actually look in the real world and we can then suddenly check that so we, we, we can accelerate our creative problem solving processes using using ai okay 
Right. Coming back, whether you like it or not, I'm going to kidnap <laughs> you. Okay. So let's just go a bit further back. You said something in the green room, which I thought was really interesting, which is you said definitions are unhelpful yeah. and there's a better way to fix things. Talk to me about that process, that iterative process of being able to discover what we should be focusing on, what the real issue is. As I mentioned, instead of using AI as uh, definitions, what we can do is we can use these six applications that I've identified. But what, what human beings still need to be able to do is identify what are the frictions that exist across our organization. There is actually a nice framework to identify those frictions. Is it a friction that's taking data, for example, and trying to extract information from that data, i.e. objects from images or entities from sound or whatever? Or is it a friction which is making some sort of prediction or is it a friction around making a decision? And so what you can do is you can you can map those six categories that I've just mentioned to this to this other framework that allows you to identify frictions. And then once you've identified frictions in your company, you can then prioritize those, those frictions according to some criteria. And we know, we know that most of the time these frictions fail to be solved because, first of all, lack of access to data or lack of access to talent or a misunderstanding about what talent you need to solve them. And um, I know there's a lot of emphasis at the moment on ethics and, and it being a blocker to AI, but AI projects fail not because of ethical reasons, even, even not because of AI safety reasons. They fail for the same reasons why software fails, because, because they've underestimated the amount of investment required, because they haven't thought about how much it costs to maintain or support those solutions, because they've used a more complicated technology rather than a simpler one, because they've applied the wrong set of skills to solving the problem, because they don't have the data. And that's really what we need to be focusing on, as opposed to some of the ethical or, or safety challenges. The other thing they've got to bloody well focus on, Daniel, is they've got to focus on causes and not symptoms. Virtually every problem I ever come across in an organization is because someone made an idiot decision upstream and they've made a lazy decision on the basis of limited information because they couldn't be asked to keep looking or this is the way that we did it in my last company five years ago uh, and they're fighting the last war. Um, and they don't take the advice of people who are actually on the coalface and having their ass kicked out there. How often can the problem be solved simply by stopping doing bloody stupid things? Yeah, it's one of the reasons why you know I, I do these podcasts. It's one of the reasons why I do a huge amount of public engagement around AI is because I want to educate as many people, you know, business leaders or, or whoever. To, to be able to kind of approach these problems in a sober way. We get very excited about technology. We get very excited about new skills that are coming out of universities like data scientists. Uh, we get very excited about what other companies are doing in terms of building data lakes. And unfortunately, I think that most of those are poor decisions rather than going back to your point, which is what, are the, what is the problem we're trying to solve and how do we make sure that we architect ourselves for sustainability and um and, and so it's what i'm saying what's one of the reasons why i do this is, is because i want to educate as many people as possible so we're not creating tech debt and wasted a huge amount of time and effort and talent in solving the wrong problems i see this in my world all the time spending so much time on the wrong problem the wrong end of the problem throwing money and effort trying to unpick the bronze into its constituent tin and copper and instead of just not melting it together in the first place, just insane. A couple of slightly more personal questions. 
looking back, what do you regret? It's a bit strange. Uh, I there's something that came blew up on Twitter a few years ago around certain people that didn't have an internal monologue. I don't know whether you have a, a, a voice in your head, a narrative in your head. I don't. Uh, some people have many voices that are constantly oh, fight. I don't. My my, wow. my head is God, my head is crazy. Yeah, it, it, a lot a lot of a lot of people say that to me, but I've never had a voice and I've never had this kind of monologue. So I, I tend not to have any expectations because there's nothing going on in there. And therefore I tend not to have any regrets. I just make the make the decision attachment. according to my, my my what my body tells me. I, I guess I should have been more aggressive in terms of my passions and my 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 beliefs. Um, I, I've got a tough point in my life now where obviously I unlocked a lot of capital from the exit of my company. I'm now trying to figure out how to leverage that to, to try to to make the world um, better. I, I sort of feel like I wish I'd done that 10 years ago and been a little bit more aggressive, but at the same time, I've learned a huge amount. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't tend to have many regrets, if, I, if I'm honest. Okay, well, that's a good place to be. And uh, yeah. it probably means that you don't have a lot of attachment which is also a great place to be because it's the route to all misery. But always yes. right. Okay, so tell me this, your most instructive fuck-up. Oh, gosh. Okay, I can... Again, I can talk about a client, actually. Just, just for, uh, uh, none of you can see, but he was wriggling beautifully in his <laughs> yes. So this is going to be a good one. Oh, no, I, don't, I think I can talk about, about a client where... And we see this a lot, right? But companies want to focus on on achieving a certain KPI. In this case, it was a client that wanted to allocate their workforce to maximized utilization. They said, if we can increase utilization by two and a half percent, we're going to be rolling in it. We built an algorithm in AI that was able to improve utilization by 12 and a half percent. Everybody would be happy, right? Every, over the moon, we've managed to smash this. But what happened was... People were working longer hours. They were driving longer distances. They weren't getting enough time to train. And so over the six, nine, 12-month period, you saw churn, you saw a degradation in, in employee well-being. And so what I think I realized was that these technologies are incredibly powerful at moving the needle. And you have to make sure that, you're, that, that if you move the needle a lot in one direction, it doesn't have adverse effects on, 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 on the other parts of the system. So now when I approach problems i think about are we solving for not just the business needs i.e utilization are we solving also for employee well-being client well-being environmental well-being so now i've learned that we need to solve problems holistically across a whole load of kpis instead of one right so it was worth waiting for that so if you're listening to this episode just rewind and listen to what daniel just said when you're dealing with complex problems, you have to look at all the moving parts. Because if you piss around with one and you don't fiddle with the rest and you don't do them all together, you know, four or five of them in parallel, maybe a dozen, who knows how complex it is. But if you don't, you end up with negative unintended consequences. And the downstream costs of those are astronomical. So again, I'm not going to ask you who the client was or what but if you think about what the likely impact was to the balance sheet, so having to replace those people uh, what, and uh, their exit whilst they went into quitting mode, then any conflict or any litigation, and then replacing them, and then the overtime and the workloads and the uh, imbalance, and then the burnout, 
you've got to think about these knock-on effects because these are systems and you, you look at a point problem and you touch it at your peril. Do some bloody thinking. Okay, right. We're coming right to the top of the hour. Daniel, this has been absolutely fantastic. Love to have you back if you'll have us. Have me in. Thank you so much, Marcus. Excellent. How can people get hold of you if indeed you want them to? Yeah, always. LinkedIn. My email is uh, daniel at satalia.com. My number is 0777675097. Can touch anytime. Excellent. Samuel Hume, thank you. Thank you very much. So this is Marcus Cathy signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you've enjoyed it and if you haven't, you're insane, then like, comment, share, subscribe, give it a review. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe. Happy sewing. Bye-bye.